All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn in the New Testament book of Acts. You can see there, uh, we're going to talk through three verses that you'll see their, their unifying component as we read them. But let's read them all, uh, kind of one after the other, and then, uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll dive in and I'll explain why, why we're going to do this this morning. First one is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And turn over to Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea. Samaria, except the apostles. And then finally, Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Okay, let's pray and ask God's help for a few minutes. Lord, thank you for your word. It is true, eternal, and powerful. Pray now for the ability to proclaim your word with compassion and courage. So help me. Pray for my friends to hear with grace and wisdom and with Holy Spirit uniquely applied applications to their life. Bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a personal moment of vulnerability. Father's Day is um, a very difficult day for me. And uh, some of you know my story, some of you don't, but uh, I haven't had a relationship with my father for 25 years. Uh, I haven't spoken to him, but I got a pretty unsettling message this week that just confirmed a lot of uh, the difficulty I've had over the years. I uh, had a, a long interaction with over social media and internet with some family members about something that happened with my father this week. And so I come to you this morning a little bit fragile. Uh, fathers, I love being a dad. I love my family and feel ultra ill-equipped to be one. <laughs> uh, and so Father's Days are difficult for me. And I think that's why perhaps you'll see this reflected in not just this message, but just about every time I have a chance to preach, I kind of have this edge um, that I want to make sure we turn our attention to the offensive charge of Jesus into the brokenness of the world. And I think I, I, think I say that first, say that I want us to face the enemies in our own brokenness as I am facing them in mine and in the broken world. And I was thinking about this this morning. One of Mel Gibson's favorite movies to me is The Patriot. If you've never seen The Patriot, go watch it. It's a great Father's Day. First you dads, go watch The Patriot. Uh, there's some cool stuff in there about him being a dad. But there's this one scene where he is uh, on the battlefield and the English are, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a movie about the American Revolution and, and uh, the, the Patriots are, are getting walloped by the English army and uh, 
Mel Gibson grabs the flag, the banner that was the emblem of their patriotic rebellion, and he grabs the flag, and in the middle of a retreat, he turns and goes headlong into the onslaught uh, against the enemy, and, and in an overwhelming turn of events, it's the turning point in the battle, and they win against uh, the British army, and they, they get their freedom. And, and that's what I want to do this morning, if I can, is ask you to take up the banner of Christ and turn against all odds. Turn against the enemy that's coming. Go against the grain. Go against the flow and charge with the banner of Christ. Not your own power, not your own ingenuity, not your own resources, but the banner of Christ. And this, these passages are going to show us that because they, they talk about what Christ did after he ascended to heaven. And that's why I love the book of Acts. Robert's been preaching through John in the, in the discourse of the upper room. And, and last week, very clearly, Jesus said to his disciples, you are going to be persecuted. It's not, it's not an option. It's not a possibility. It could happen. It's going to happen. The world is going to hate you because of me. That's what he told them. And the book of Acts shows us the immediate application of how that happened and what happened. And that's why I've chosen these three to show you what happened. And there are some applications for us. But the, the, the sobering reality is much of what we read here in Acts and even see in the broader world is not our experience in middle Kentucky in 2018. I'm not experiencing a whole bunch of persecution. Haven't seen any beheadings, no lion's dens, no gladiator, no gladiator arenas or Christian, no Christians being burned at the stake. We're just not seeing it. Does that mean it's not happening? And what does that mean for us? So what I want to do on the outset, before we dive into the passage, I want to sort of shake our cage a little bit from a macro level and then at an internal level. Here's what I mean by shaking it at a macro level. 322 Christians a month are killed globally for their faith. 215 churches and Christian property are destroyed every month in the world. 775 forms of violence Kidnappings, rape, beatings are committed against Christians every month. More than 70 million Christians have been martyred in the course of history and more than half were martyred in the 20th century. The 21st century alone has seen 160,000 Christians killed each year. Roughly 1.1 million Christians died because they believed Jesus Christ rose from the dead between the years of 2000 and 2010. That's a lot of death. Because they believe Jesus is the Lord of the universe and he rose from the dead. But if you're like me, it kind of strikes a dissonant chord. I, really? That's happening in the world? I mean, I can get on Voice of the Martyrs website and I can get on Open Doors and I can read missionary newsletters, but that's not my daily experience. Sure, there have been instances in America from Columbine to the Oregon Community College shooting that kind of had a Christian hate crime associated to it. But interestingly enough, in America, the largest persecuted group is not Christians, it's Jews and Muslims. And in fact, the group, the, the motivation for most persecution in America is race and gender. And I started thinking about this this week and, how, and it struck me as very disturbing because America is a Christian nation, right? 
It was founded by Christian men and women. It was founded as a, a fleeing of oppression in England to have the freedom of religion. So clearly, Jesus told us in the scriptures that we would be persecuted, that we'd be hated by the world. But that's not happening in America. Other groups are getting more persecuted than Christians. But it's even more disturbing is that the hands of Christians in a Christian nation has been some of the most horrific oppression the world has ever known. 15 of our first 16 presidents were slave owners. In fact, men who started the Presbyterian church owned slaves. Just listen to the news recently about the immigration debate. The rhetoric doesn't sound like Jesus and his followers welcoming the outsiders or the church in America being the light to the nations. In fact, it sounds the opposite. So could it be that Christian America is actually too comfortable in our home, too planted, we're too integrated in a system that allows us to have freedom of religion, but actually is a false security of what it actually means to follow Christ. Or even more troubling is the inability of most Christians to live out a vibrant faith in an environment or culture that doesn't gel with them. When they can't be protected and insulated and to have a predictable belief system, it's the inability to live as a minority. It's easy to live as a Christian in this culture. There's no pressure. But my question this morning that I think this, these passages beg is, do you have a faith that would transcend your culture? How would your faith do if you were in the minority and you were actually being persecuted? So here's my basic premise this morning. The church of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. That's a promise. Persecution will cause the church to scatter. And when the scattering happens, the church is meant to grow and be built up. The church is meant to transcend the culture, not enmesh with it or judge and criticize it. And we're going to see that. By way of a, just a rudimentary illustration, I'm a, you have to forgive these sometimes when I talk because I'm an early childhood education major. And so my, my, my uh, intellectual cap is like eight years old. I love finger painting and flannel boards and, and rock illustrations. So we read about the rock of God. And every time I hear that, that God is a rock, the rock of ages, is I, I, I love to go to a pond early in the morning and throw rock, a rock into it and watch the ripples. Because it reminds me of what I think God intends for my life. That when the rock of God is thrown into my heart, he intends ripples to come out from it. And he intends that for the church. And he intends to throw the church as a rock into the pond of the city that ripples would go out. And this passage in Acts 1 is the clearest ripple effect of the rock of Jesus being dropped into Jerusalem and the ripple effects happening. And you're gonna see that as we read it. So we're gonna see the promise of being a witness, the pathway of being a witness, and the preparation of becoming a witness. So let's start with the promise, Acts 1.8. Very familiar passage. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Jesus said. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He begins this by telling them a promise. You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. This is, this is not new. 
This is not a new strategy. This is not a new cult. This is not a new religion. This was firmly rooted in the prophets. God intended Israel to be a light to the nations. From the beginning, just read the book of Isaiah. Particularly read chapters 40 through 66. It's just clear. God intended his people to be a light to the nation. So this was nothing new. And this squarely fits with what Jesus said at the end of Luke, before he ascended, what he intended his disciples to be, witnesses. And he provides the assurance that this promise and this power would happen by saying, I'm going to send my spirit. This is not up to you. It's not going to be on the backs of your ingenuity and creativity. It's not going to be contingent upon your faithfulness. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to provide my spirit for it to happen. It is a promise. It will not fail, no matter what you think, no matter what the pundits say, no matter how you project and predict, it's going to happen. God's promises are sure, and he has said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Notice the ripple effect there. It will start in the epicenter of Jerusalem, and it will go out to the ends of the earth. There's a lot that has been written about this, and I encourage you to read it. But let me say a few words here. Jerusalem, the place where the Son of God was betrayed and crucified, tried by sinful men and died. That was going to be the epicenter of the ripple effect. That's where the rock was going to be dropped. But it wasn't meant to stay there. The witness was to expand. And where he says it will expand was to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas. Judea, this Jewish audience would have had no problem with. Great. We love Judea. Kind of like to eat our, we like to eat the fish up there. We like to kind of hang out in that area. They got cool stuff there. They got cool music. But Samaria, no thanks. We avoid it. We actually go around it. We make fun of them. We tell jokes about them. We, we marginalize them. They are unclean. They're the people we don't associate with. Well, Jesus says, no, you got it wrong. I intend to invade Samaria as well. So this ripple effect is going to happen in Jer- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then he sets the unthinkable to the Jewish crowd to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles are going to get this. And to the Jewish ear in this day it would have been Rome. Rome would have been the ends of the earth to them. Wait, Jesus, you mean this gospel is going to go to Caesar, the emperor? It's going to invade the whole Roman Empire? It's exactly what I mean. I'm king. He's not. I've already made that clear. And you're going to take the gospel to that. So this promise is sure. And the rest of the book of Acts unfolds in those concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Interestingly, Acts 1 through Acts 7 is all about the Jerusalem epicenter. What happened in Jerusalem, how the church was built up, the persecution that happened there, the raising up of the apostles and their authority, the miracles that took place, Pentecost, you you know the story. But then something happens interestingly in Acts 8.1, and again, my elementary mind loves that there's a chapter verse connection there because I can remember it easy, right? Acts 1.8 is the promise, Acts 8.1 is the pathway to how the promise got hit, uh, got implemented. Look at it. Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Stop there. Don't gloss over this. This is Saul, the eventual apostle Paul, who has in his hands the clothes and the hearty approval of the death of Stephen, a very well-known, very popular Jew that had become a Christian. And Stephen was the first martyr. And Paul approved the stoning 
of Stephen because he believed the resurrected Jesus was the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Paul approved of this. Folks, do not miss this. A man was beaten in the head repeatedly with rocks because he believed that Jesus Christ was Lord. So Luke goes on and says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Here it goes. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What happened to the persecution? The ripples. They were forced out of Jerusalem. They were forced out to go live and play and work and share their faith and raise their kids in the regions of Judea and Samaria. Persecution ensured that the gospel would go to all regions. Do you see that? Jesus made a promise and then brought persecution upon the church so that the promise would actually happen. The famous church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's kind of gross. The church was built because people died. This is squarely what Jesus taught. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Persecution was the God-ordained opportunity to spread the gospel. So that led me to ask, what is our opportunity? I'm not experiencing persecution, but does that mean I'm not experiencing God-ordained opportunities? What about globalization and immigration and technology? Could it be that God is bringing these to the forefront in our world, not so that we can have political debates about them, but so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the nations? Your political ideology should not be the governing paradigm of how you view immigration. The promises of God should be. God has promised that all the nations will be blessed. He might be bringing all the nations here. Are you ready? What is clear from this passage is that Jesus will fulfill his promises, sometimes through difficult means and challenging means. He intends the gospel to go to Samaria. Just a side note here. Notice at the end of that verse, it says that all were scattered except the apostles. There's a group of people in the church, and perhaps there's some of you today, who think that the only people charged with the Great Commission are the professionals, the apostles, the ordained ministers, those that are uh, trained. This, this verse sort of blows that idea up because it says that the apostles were the only ones who stayed. It was all those who come to Christ from the apostles that were scattered. So what that screams to me is it's all of our responsibility to scatter the gospel. It's not just the professionals. Everyone is charged to bear witness to Christ. So then you have Acts 8. And Acts 8 is full of how Samaria was reached, Philip and the eunuch and all these different things. And then you have chapter 9, which is the story of Paul and his conversion. And you feel this crescendo building because Acts 10 through 28 is all about the nations. It's all about Rome. And the, the book of Acts ends with Paul in a jail cell in Rome. 
But then there's this kind of inter pause that Paul gives, I mean, that Luke gives in Acts 9, 31. Look at it. This is the preparation for a witness. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. They weren't being persecuted during this time. There was peace in Judea, Samaria. Notice the witnesses had become churches. Side note here, there's no better strategy in the world for reaching the, the lost, a city, than church planting. It's not programs. It's not better, uh, better methods. It's plant more churches, which means more witnesses being scattered out in the region. That's the simple strategy. Go build my church. And during this time of peace, what Luke says is they were being built up. The Greek word here is a present participle form, meaning it's an ongoing process of identity formation and stabilization. The church was not forming to its culture around it. It was identifying itself in a fresh, new way, a kingdom on earth. It was a new people. Because in a few short years, this group of people would experience persecution like had never been seen under the hand of Nero and the emperors to come. So Luke tells us that they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They didn't fear the Roman Empire. They didn't fear the, the markets of finances. They didn't fear their resumes. They didn't fear fill in the blank. They feared God. It says that they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were comforting each other with the Spirit. The Spirit was comforting them, and they were growing. One commentator I read said this, growth in numbers and growth in godliness of believers resulted from the work of the Holy Spirit, enabling leaders and people to minister to each other and to live in a way that expressed fear of God rather than fear of their persecutors. Growing in godliness and growing in number are not mutually exclusive. In fact, the Bible says healthy things grow and reproduce. A great sign that a true and godly church is existing, a healthy church, is that it is multiplying and growing. What did the church do during this time of peace? They did not get comfortable living in and with the culture around them. They didn't treasure the values and ideals of Rome. They feared God and grew in the power of the Holy Spirit. What was God doing in that peace? He was preparing them for a day to come. I have to ask, are you preparing for that day? It might not be you, it might not be your kids. I'm predicting it's gonna be my grandkids. My grandkids are gonna grow up in a very different world. They already are. Where not only will they just kind of have marginalized jokes made about them as Christians, they will actually be killings. John Piper once said, life is war. It's not only war, but it's always war. I love this phrase. Let me repeat it. Life is war. It's not only war, but it's always war. Let me give you an example. Perhaps this afternoon, me and my family will go to the pool. We love the pool. We take our drinks. We take our aqua football so we can throw it. We take our blankets and our books and our headsets and we go. And we go. Is that war? Come on, it's the pool. 
But I struggle, I struggle there with my body image. Man, I'm not as built as that guy. I'm kind of fat in the belly. I know my daughters struggle with their body image at the pool. Sexual lust is a struggle at the pool. Getting our kids to play nicely with other kids at the pool is a struggle. So yeah, the pool's not war only, but it is war. And if I give in at that moment to that, I am giving way to the enemy. How do you prepare for a persecution out here? You do it right now in the little things. What about church? Was it war for you to walk in today? Perhaps it was as you and your wife fight. It's funny that fights happen more on the way to church than they do anywhere else. But this is, y'all look great. There's no guns. There's no soldiers. There's no, there's no threats. We're all kind of just worshiping as we want. It's not war, is it? No, but there's criticism going on right now. There's judgment going on right now. There's sin in the heart right now. There's expectations and preferences that aren't being met. You better believe this is war. And if you deny that, you deny the clear teaching of Scripture that the enemy is the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we have to do battle there. How do you prepare for a coming persecution? You fight now. What's my point? I think you get it. Let's prepare for the day of battle by preparing today. And I think the scripture's answer to this, I know this sounds overly spiritual, but it's to repent. The word repentance literally in the Greek means a change of mind. So when Jesus came to the earth, he said, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning change your mind, change your allegiance, change the way you do things because the kingdom is at hand. So let me offer some paradigm shifts for us to change our minds. Number one, safety is the enemy of security. If we're gonna stand in the face of persecution, we have to have security. That might not mean safety. Listen, we have more alarms, we have more locks, I have more passcodes from my garage door to my email. I am safe. But our counseling offices are loaded with the most insecure people the world has ever known. Why? Safety does not ensure security. And in fact, some of the most secure people on the planet live where they fear their life every hour of the day. Do not mistake safety for security. Parents, teach your kids security. In fact, introduce risk to them. Make them trust God. Risk your money. Make your family trust God. He alone is a rock. Security is a paradigm shift. We have to have a paradigm shift to live by conviction, not by comfort and convenience. In those moments of your life when you should speak up for something, do you choose comfort and convenience? I can remember so many times where I've heard jokes about a race, about a gender, about a, a lifestyle that I just shrugged off an uncomfortable kind of nervous laughter when I should have in my conviction said, no, they are made in the image of God. They are bought with the blood of Christ. You will not make fun of them or tell jokes like that. Conviction. Conviction now in the little things will be conviction when the blade is coming and the fire is burned and my property is being plundered. 
We have to teach convictions. Do you have convictions about your business practices? Do they violate justice and mercy and righteousness? Or are you just conveniently and comfortably making money without regard to the practices that you have? Live by conviction. Your time, your money, are you living with those with convictions? Am I preparing my family for convictions? Listen, I know my kids, and they're here today in this service, and I know they get tired of hearing me talk about technology. But it feels like the gaping highway of wickedness coming our way. It just is. And I had my conversation with my son. I said, son, we're going to stand in the river of this onslaught, and we're going to turn upstream against it. Because if we stand still, it's going to wash us away. I don't want my son, my daughters, my friends, their friends to live by conviction when it comes to technology. Because it's easy to say, I'm tired, I'm bored, here's a video game. I'm tired, I'm bored, go watch some Netflix. That's easy. And I don't want my kids to grow up in a world of easy. I want them to grow up in a world of conviction. Security, conviction. Thirdly, a paradigm shift of identity. Aligning yourself with certain worldly ideologies is the enemy of a Christ-centered identity. You are meant to be centered in Christ. The kingdom of God transcends all the kingdoms of the world. And so to align myself with a political ideology, uh, ideology, even a theological ideology, can be at the expense of my identity in Christ He rules my life. And the test of this is can I allow him to criticize all the other ideologies of the world? And I align with him, not those. We live in a monarchy, folks. King Jesus. And that means every other system, from education to finance to politics, ought to come under the example of Jesus' rule. We ought to test ourselves with him. Our identity has to be Christ because on that day of persecution, what will stand is not the kingdoms of the world, but the kingdom of God. Security, conviction, identity, and lastly, paradigm shift of presence. Do we have a holy presence? The word holy is trivialized today. It's it's, it's people wearing color, you know, white robes and not watching bad movies. You know, it's, oh, he's a holy person. He has a lot of Lecrae albums. Or he, uh, you know, he wears a lot of Christian t-shirts. Or, you know, they, he has six Bibles. He's really holy. You know, it's not the Bible's definition. The Bible's definition of holy was set apart. Other. So God, yes, is sinless and absolutely righteous, but he's that way because he's other than you. He's set apart from you. He's holy. In fact, the scriptures call him holy, holy, holy. He's that set apart. But the biblical expectation of us is that we are holy. He says you're a holy nation, God's chosen people, that you would represent his great name in the world. So your presence is a holy presence. In this day and age of intense pleasure, it's hard to have a holy presence. It's hard to be set apart. We get so meshed into the pleasures of the world, the ease of the world, the comfort of the world, the thinking of the world, the spending of the world. The enemy of holy presence is pleasure. So I challenge you today to live a holy life.
Not self-righteous. Not setting yourself apart because you have more Bibles than your neighbor. But you actually are living a holy life. Different. As Robert will say when we do communion, Jesus embodied these. The security that he had. He had no place to lay his head. He didn't have one possession. He didn't have one bank account. He had no retirement. He had, you know, I know it's like, oh, well, he was Jesus. Yeah, but there's something about his presence on the earth that says you can live life on earth secure. Why? Because his security was rooted outside of this world. Jesus had conviction. He didn't give in to the comforts of this world. He didn't give into the comforts of his friends. He lived and taught conviction. He drew us into an identity that was separate from this world. He drew them out. He drew Simon the Zealot, one of his disciples, out of his political radicalism and gave him a new identity. And there's no question, Jesus had a holy presence. He was knocking people off their pedestals all over the place. He had a holy presence. So in closing, just thinking about how to, how to close this and I know I've probably read this before, but I can't find a better description of what I think these passages in Acts, in the whole book of Acts, are teaching than this anonymous letter that an African pastor wrote years and years ago, and it was nailed to his wall in his village. I'm going to read this to you. And what I want you to hear here is what I gave you at the beginning, was the taking of the banner of Christ And instead of retreating with the world, turning against the retreat and creating an an offensive charge against the enemy. Pick up the banner of Christ. Charge forward. Listen to this. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be tops. I don't have to be recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, I cannot be compromised, I cannot be detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, I will not hesitate in the presence of the adversary, I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, I will not ponder at the pool of popularity, nor will I meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. 
And when he comes for his own, he will have no problems recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Those are strong words. And I pray that as a church, we would pick up that banner and turn against the forces of evil in your own heart, in the world, and fight because it's coming. Coming persecution is coming, but the banner of Christ will not fail. Let's pray. Lord, we know that it will not fail because you have given us your spirit. I feel fragile. I feel weak. I feel clueless. I feel afraid. I worry about money. I worry about protection. Lord, I, as a father, as a man today, surrender all that to you. Give me the security I need. Give me the identity I need. Help me to live by the convictions I know are in your word. And give me a holy presence on this earth. Lord, thank you that you have gone ahead of us. And not only modeled this, but you have actually done the eternal war work on the cross for us. You will not fail. Remind us of that, Lord. As hard as it may get, as comfortable as we may seem right now, remind us that you have won the war. You will reign. And righteousness and justice will flow down like waters. And the nations of the world will drink for free. Lord, until that day, strengthen our weak knees. Strengthen our feeble backs. Our nervous hands, pray that you'd calm them. Our fearful hearts, I pray you'd strengthen them. Give us grace these days to fight. Fight in the little ways so that when the day of testing comes, we'll be able to stand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.